Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Some of you may have heard my conversation with Steve Kerr, the coach of the uh, world champion Golden State Warriors. Well, we got together again, this time on CNN the other day, for my television version of The Axe Files. What follows here is an extended version of that conversation in which Steve talks about President Trump, about the Middle East where he grew up, and about his own battle with chronic pain. Coach, good to, good to see you. Uh, you guys are headed to Washington in February, uh, and everybody will be watching that visit very closely because normally when the world champions come to town, they make a stop at the White House. Uh, you're not going to make that stop. Why? Well, first, we weren't invited. Um, but uh, I think our guys felt pretty strongly even before we knew that we didn't have an invitation, that it was going to be a tough visit. Um, a lot of us, myself included, have been pretty critical of President Trump. And, and um, so it would, it would have been a, a very non-traditional visit. You know, you think about the, the White House visit with the championship teams. It's, it's a photo op. It's a, it's a thrill. It's everybody, you know, making jokes and having fun. You give the president the jersey and... Um, and that's it, and it's kind of a fun day, but times have changed. The world has changed. Uh, the office of the presidency has changed. And, uh, and so the whole dynamic of the, the athlete visit has shifted entirely. You know, when I was in the White House and working for President Obama, it always used to miff me a little when athletes, the teams would come, but a few athletes would mm-hmm. stay mm-hmm. Uh, away. And I thought, ah, you know, this is, to, this is not a political event. Right. Why are they turning it into a, a, a political event? And you probably hear some of that criticism now. Sure, sure. Um, I think it goes way beyond politics. I, I think, uh, you know, I made the, the statement that um, I've been lucky to, to visit the White House with, I think, four different presidents, um, President Reagan, President Clinton, uh, both President Bushes. And um, I didn't always agree with their policy, but I never once thought about, oh, my gosh, I'm not going to go because I disagree with, you know, immigration or, you know, some foreign policy or tax uh, reform. I, I, it, so what's different now? It's, it's just a uh, human dignity. It's a human respect issue. Um, and so with all of those uh, presidents that I mentioned, there was, they were all above reproach in terms of their um, respect for their fellow man and their, their respect for the office. And I don't think any of us see that right now. We see what uh, President Trump does with his, uh, with his words, uh, with his actions, um, and it's difficult to reconcile that and just say, well, we'll, we'll put all that aside, you know. He can make fun of handicapped people. He can, you know, he can 
say a lot of you know nasty things, ugly things, whether it's about women, wh- whomever. Um, there, the, there can be a lot of things that happen that are just really difficult to just say, all right, we'll put that aside and go visit and shake his hand. It's, it, it doesn't feel right. And you, uh, Steph Curry uh, was outspoken on this point. I think that's how the invitation never came, yeah. was that he made his views known as to whether he personally would go to the White House and the president made it clear that he wasn't going to proffer that invitation. So you guys talked about this among yourself. We did. We talked about it um, over the summer a little bit. It's hard to get together with the whole team in the summer. Everybody's scattered. And so uh, we knew that the invitation, whether it was going to come or not, uh, was problematical. Yeah, yeah. It was was going to be, first there was the logistical issue of discussing it as a team. And so what happened was we had media day and we were planning on meeting literally the next day to discuss this issue. But on media day, um, that's when President Trump tweeted out, or that's when Steph announced, I would not go if we're invited. And that, that sort of made it easy for everybody, to be honest with you. Did you know he was going to do that? Did I he didn't. tell you he was going to do that? I didn't, no. Yeah. So now you know what it's like to be on the White House staff. Yeah. you got to watch Twitter to see what, <laughs> that's right. that's what right. people are going to do. You were in... Uh, you were around when the Colin Kaepernick protests were going on when he was playing uh, for the 49ers. Um, what did you think then uh, about that? Um, I fully supported his right to speak out. I thought he made some mistakes, uh, some big mistakes early. He wore the socks. The, uh, you remember the socks that were like policemen in, as in pigs or mm-hmm. pigs in policemen uniforms. Um, uh, he, I think... Um, said he didn't, he didn't have a clear message at first, uh, but I supported his right to protest. And I think what he did was really admirable. He went out and sought the advice of a man named Nate Boyer, who was a uh, former player with the Seahawks, who I believe was a ranger, an army ranger. I may have that wrong. He might have mm-hmm. been a SEAL, but he was a military veteran uh, who gave Kaepernick the advice to kneel. And he said, instead of sitting on the bench, Kneel because kneeling is also a sign of respect. If you think about, you know, you bow in front of somebody, and, and so this was the advice that Kaepernick sought out. He, so he sort of refined his message. He started saying, I, "I thought things that made more sense in terms of clarifying what he was protesting." And instead of sitting, he knelt, um, which, from the advice of of Nate Boyer, was a sign of, "Okay, I'm protesting, but I, I'm also doing it in a respectful manner." Um, so once he refined things, once he sort of figured out what he wanted to, to do, what he wanted to say, I thought he had a really powerful message, and it's proven to be very much so. You're a, a, a great judge of athletes. You've been around athletes all your life. You, you recognize talent when you see it. Why isn't he in the NFL now, Colin Kaepernick? Well, he's clearly a much better player than um, a lot of the guys who are playing backup quarterback around the league. Um, I think there's two reasons he's not in the NFL. One is marketing. I think the NFL owners are concerned about their fan base. Um, And two, and these reasons really go hand in hand, uh, the distraction uh, that he would cause. Given modern media, um, the way we live, uh, the minute he signs with a team, can you imagine the media throng, the attention that will be on every game? And so I understand, I totally understand a general manager who doesn't want to deal with that. You, you think about Tim Tebow, for example. You know, Tim Tebow was such a distraction because he was Tim Tebow. And it wasn't, it didn't even become, you know, was he good enough? or is he, it, was, it was like this sort of cultural war over 
Tim Tebow. And that was just nothing, right? Tim Tebow, what did he represent? He represented uh, right. whether, whether, he, whether he was a great college quarterback or an NFL quarterback. Were, there were no political dynamics to it or anything. So, but the distraction was so dramatic that the teams that signed him were sort of overwhelmed. So I think that same dynamic exists right now uh, with, with Kaepernick. I think teams don't want to deal with that. But the real issue is that it's a marketing thing. I think teams are afraid that uh, their, their fans, uh, the conservative ones who are offended by uh, Kaepernick's stance, um, I think they would, that would affect business. And so as a result, I think... Uh, I think teams are just shying away. So if you were a GM, you would have to make that same calculation? Yeah. What, what uh, you know, it was kind of shocking uh, because it came out of the blue. When Kaepernick's been out of the league for a very, for, for, a long, for a while. And then the president kind of brought it up out of the blue uh, at, a, uh, at a rally, at a political right. rally in Alabama. And the whole thing started up. Mm-hmm all over again. What, what, what were your thoughts when you saw that? That came just about the same time that all this other stuff was going right. on with you guys. Yeah, well, this is, this is another reason why I think all of us and our team have a tough time with the president, because it's instead of uh, unifying and, and uh, trying to calm the storm, he's creating it over and over again. We see it with his tweets every day. Um, so that was, uh, you know, he used the word sons of bitches to talk about NFL players who have made it clear they're protesting racial inequality and police brutality. Uh, those are sons of bitches, really. You're going to call, you're the president of the United States. You're going to call them sons of bitches. Um, and you're going to call Kaepernick out um, for nonviolent protest, um, a staple of American democracy. That's really hard to, to deal with. And that was, for me, that was probably the hardest one to deal with. You know, the personal slights um, that we've seen from Trump, I mean, you, you sort of get used to it after a while. You get numb to it. But um, that one really stung um, because it was so divisive and it was so angry and it just didn't, didn't make sense. But in certain ways it had the desired effect in that he sort of dominated the right. news. There, and there's also a constituent side. You've seen the NFL uh, it took a hit around it, and the owners were scrambling uh, around sure. that issue. So there was a, it was, uh, you know, maybe diabolically sh- clever, but it was definitely a, a ploy. Yeah, but think about it. I mean, you're right. It was diabolically clever, but is that the president's job to no, be diabolically I'm, clever no, and I divide, you know? No, I understand. Yeah. I, I understand. Um, Draymond Green, you're wonderful player, uh, great, a great, great player, also very outspoken. And he was at, uh, uh, he was at Harvard the other day uh, giving a mm-hmm. uh, talk. Uh, and he got into this colloquy with Mark Cuban, yeah. uh, long distance, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, Draymond said, I don't think we should call people who run sure. teams as owners. Um, and I had never thought about it mm-hmm. in those terms yeah. before. Did you, what were, did you talk to him about that before he went and gave that talk? Oh, no, no, no. Draymond says whatever he wants, anytime he wants, which is what I love about him. But uh, I had never heard that argument either. I had never heard the, the idea that uh, the referencing an owner um, would be offensive. But, of course, you know, you and I are white guys. You know, we, like, we, we've grown up in a different 
background, different environment. And I think that was Draymond's point, is that you know, we all have a sort of a different circumstance in life, and, and you've got to think about everybody's uh, circumstance. You've got to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. It makes perfect sense. Um, yeah, know. yeah, no, I, it does, and it made me think, uh, you've lived in this world this, uh, of NBA sports mm-hmm. uh, for a couple of decades. And um, how much has that sensitized you to issues that you never would have been sensitive to? Because one of the big things that worries me is we live in silos. Right, right. We live in silos. Yeah. And, it, you know, the people who, who say, yes, we should stand for the anthem. And I, you know, I'm, I, I don't want to see NFL games if people are mm-hmm. protesting. Uh, and, you know, the people who are protesting police brutality or uh, other issues. Um, but there's very little cross-pollination, yeah. very little yeah. discussion. How much has being a player and being a coach sensitized you to issues that you never would have been yeah. sensitive it's, to? It's really one of the great uh, blessings in my life is to have been um, uh, raised uh, overseas in uh, different cultures with different different people from all over the, the world. And then from actually from junior high on, um, um, basically living and working um, or going to school in integrated situations and then being uh, in the NBA for, I guess, 27 years now, whatever, 29 years. Um, it's a multicultural melting pot um, work environment. And you just you understand you you start to see where everybody comes from and you know my my old coach Greg Popovich has one of the great sayings I've ever heard he said we we are all just a, a, an accident of birth you know like none of us are asked to be born into the situations we're born and we're born black we're born white we're born poor or rich whatever we are just you know we are who we are and it's so important to understand who the other person is and where he came from because it's in most cases um, it's very different, and uh, the more you can learn about that person, the easier it is to get out of that silo that you mentioned and understand that there's nuance to everything in yeah. the world. Yeah, that must be particularly important if you're trying to forge a, a unit uh, of, sure. of people to, to work together, to play together mm-hmm. as a player and a coach. It is. It's, it's, the, it's really the fun part of coaching is trying to connect with each player, understand his circumstances and challenges um, on the floor, off the floor, um, where he came from. Um, and that's, you know, in the NBA, you got guys from all over the world. I think there's over 100 foreign players. Obviously, uh, you know, you have a huge African-American uh, percentage of players. Um, but you've got this vast background just on our own team. You know, we've got, we've got guys from the Republic of Georgia and Israel. We've got Steph Curry and Clay Thompson grew up in NBA families. Uh, we've got guys who, you know, came from really difficult backgrounds. We've got guys who are from huge families and, you know, only children. And that's what makes coaching fun. You have to figure all that stuff out and how do you connect with each player and then how does that all form as a group? Um, we talked about uh, uh, protest. Um, it, would you consider you guys not going to the White House as a form of protest? I mean, is that a, would you view it in those terms? Well, since we weren't invited, it's it's. Um, but but let's presume that you would have been okay. had it, you not had uh, Steph not signal that you weren't going to. Yeah, go. it's a it's a slight um, protest. I, I, I you know it's nowhere near as 
courageous as what a lot of people are doing, but it was it's, it would definitely be a statement that we disagree with with the president. So, you, I, I follow your Twitter feed. It's, it's uh, mostly not about sports. Mm-hmm. It's mostly about public issues. And the question comes up, um, should, why should people care uh, uh, what you or what athletes yeah. say? I mean, you are, you're prominent because of your, of your, uh, of your work on yeah. the court and around that. And... Uh, so, so why should folks uh, look to you, to you guys no. for political inspiration? They shouldn't. They don't need to. You know, if they don't want to, then they don't have to. But um, everybody's got a Twitter feed. You know, like why why does anybody For care? People about who probably eating? shouldn't, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, to me, this is more um, a question of of you know how the world works now and social media and 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 uh, just the. The whole way we operate, um, everybody has a voice. It just so happens that if you're famous, um, more people are going to follow you. Do you feel a responsibility because you're famous that uh, to speak out on these issues? That's a good question. I don't know that I feel a responsibility. It's more just in my heart. Um, I'm so, so disgusted by um, the lack of sensible uh, gun policy. I'm so disgusted. And I know by that's it. a lot of what you've been tweeting about. Lately. Yeah, yeah. I, I tweet a lot of. I, I mostly retweet stuff. You know, I, I uh, especially in the position that I'm in. Um, you know, I used to tweet when I was a commentator uh, for TNT, and I would tweet about basketball. And as with everything in Twitter, stuff gets thrown back in my face all the time. You know, <laughs> so like years ago, I, I think uh, I was working at TNT, and LeBron, you know, had a huge game, and I tweeted something like. Uh, you know, if I could pick one player to have on a, in a in a road game in Game Seven in the playoffs, <laughs> I'd take LeBron. You think any Cleveland fans might have retweeted that after Cleveland beat us on the road in Game Seven? Yeah. Uh, so I learned my lesson with Twitter. Like, you got to be really careful, especially now. Um, so I'm more interested in just um, retweeting articles, trying to spread the word. If I see something really sensible, um, Nick Kristoff wrote a great piece in the New York Times two weeks ago about comparing gun safety to the automobile industry, right? And, uh, you know, in the 50s, you were nine times as likely to die in a car accident than you are today. Um, And the reason it's gone down is simple, you know, safety measures, seatbelts, car seats, you know, speed limits, um, you know, making sure driver's license uh, background stuff was uh, was thorough and, you know, the right people were in the or behind the wheel, and 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 the the whole article was like, you know, we don't have to take away people's Second Amendment rights, but what we need is some common sense. And yet, people are getting massacred every week. Yeah. And we won't do anything about it. That's ridiculous to me, and it drives me crazy. And so I'm constantly retweeting stuff that I read about about that issue because it means something to me. I look at you, and I would say, well, this guy is. Uh a, a like the missing beach boy uh, you have the blonde hair the blue eyes and so on and I think the assumption is that you grew up playing basketball in the US and uh, you know went to the University of Arizona and the rest uh, flowed from there but you didn't grow up uh, you, you spent part of your life here but part of your life in the Middle East right 
Um, And talk about what that was like, because you were very much not uh, sort of in the mainstream of of culture and so on. What, What did you learn from that experience? Well, I, I sort of had the best of both worlds. I, I uh, was born in Beirut, but spent most of my childhood in and Los explain Angeles. Explain why. You're, yeah, my, my dad got was... a long-standing uh, connection. Yeah, yeah. Actually, my grandparents uh, settled in Beirut after World War I. They, have, uh, they had a, uh, uh, a really great history of uh, running an orphanage uh, for Armenian uh, children during the uh, Armenian Holocaust. And um, they ended up settling in Beirut afterwards. Uh, the, the orphanage was actually in Lebanon, and they loved Beirut so much, so they settled, and they ended up being uh, working at the university, the American University. And so my dad was born there and raised, raised there and eventually um, taught there, went to grad school there and taught there, and that's where I was born. My two older siblings were born there. So, um, but my dad eventually took a job at UCLA, so we spent a lot of time in Los Angeles. And then periodically he would take sabbaticals uh, overseas. He was a professor of uh, Middle Eastern history. And so we spent time in Cairo and Tunisia. More than a little. You were there during your junior high school yeah. years. Three years in Cairo, um, a year in France, um, a summer in Tunisia. So I, I got this incredible education, uh, even if uh, I probably didn't appreciate it at the time. You know, when you're 12, you just want to hang out with your buddies in, on the beach in L.A. Um, but we got that, too. You know, we sort of went back and forth. So I was really blessed to uh, kind of see the world and, and meet a lot of different people. And, and what did, how did that help, how does it change the lens through which you look at? at well, um, I've lived in different cultures. I've seen... Um, what, Speak what? Arabic. <laughs> I did speak it pretty well, um, enough to get around when I was there for a couple of years. Um, and I saw Americans uh, in Cairo. Uh, we were beloved. This is the so late 70s. 70s now, yeah. you know, beloved. Um, what we stood for, our culture, um, you know, everybody copied us. Um, and we were beloved. And I think we still are, in, uh, for the most part, um, in, in a lot of places around the world, but people are wondering, you know, what the hell happened to us? Um, they, they don't love our foreign policy. They don't love what's happening with our government, but I think they still love American values. Um, whether we're hanging on to those values or not, we'll see. But um, I saw all that. I saw different perspectives. I saw how people saw us, and then I was in somebody else's backyard having to adapt to their culture. And, and those are great, great things to experience as a human being. Uh, your dad uh, went uh, back to Beirut in the early 80s yeah. uh, to, to become president of the American University uh, in Beirut. It was a really uh, difficult time there. It was. Um, the embassy had been, uh, had been attacked. Mm-hmm. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of people had lost their lives just months before he yeah. uh, arrived there. Uh, talk about him and what is it that uh, caused him to want to go back uh, knowing that it was a very dangerous assignment? Yeah. Well, he, it was his dream job, um, having been raised um, at the university, literally, and then going to school there, uh, speaking fluent Arabic, um, loving the culture uh, in, in Beirut, uh, loving the idea of, of bringing people, students to the university who could foster peace and, and understanding amongst all the different religious groups. Um, 
he loved that. He loved that challenge. He loved the idea. And when the job came up, he knew it was dangerous, but I think he felt somewhat protected because of his background and because of his reputation. But obviously that was... But in, uh, in a weird paradoxical way, it was those very qualities that made him a target. That's right. That's right. Because yeah. he was a force for reconciliation, for That's understanding. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was a positive image for the U.S. That's right. That's uh, right. And he became the most prominent American in Beirut at the time because um, you mentioned the embassy bombing. There was the marine barracks that were bombed. I think over 300 marines were killed. It was yeah. awful. Um, and so the military left. The embassy basically um, after it was bombed. Um, I don't remember if it was closed, but it was obviously, um, you know, basically shut down for the most part. People left. So the, the American University campus became sort of the next um, most obvious place where you were going to find Americans. And he was the president. And so he was the target. And uh, you, you were uh, you went over there with him when he returned in the summer yeah. of 1983. You were going to be a freshman at the University of Arizona. You got a taste of how dangerous it was, e- even as you I were did. trying to leave to go back to, to, to college. Yeah, my mom took me to the airport. I was heading back to for my first uh, day of of school at U of A, and and uh, we went to the airport, and all of a sudden there was some shelling on the runway. We were in the terminal, and we heard this big explosion, and the whole uh, terminal, fro- everybody just froze. And then we heard another one, and it was a little closer. And it wasn't like windows were breaking or anything, but it was it was pretty obvious that there were bombs going on going off nearby. And it turned out it was the runways. Uh, I, I can't remember exactly who was doing the shelling, but they wanted to make a statement and close the airport down. And so at that point, everybody took off running. My mom and I ran out of the terminal and jumped in a in a car. I think we had a, a driver. Um, and drove because she was going to drop me off and go back uh, to the campus with the driver. And we jumped in with the driver and went back to campus. And I ended up getting stuck there for about five days um, because the airport was shut down. And, and you never did leave from that airport, right? right. You had to take uh, some circuitous mm-hmm. route through Syria and yeah. Jordan. Yeah, had to drive with, a, uh, with that same driver through Syria into Jordan and eventually uh, flew home from Amman, uh, on Jordanian Airlines, I still remember, um, and uh, it was about five days after that that had happened. So, you know, at that point, it's like, my God, this is this were is you, no joke. Were you were you when you got on that plane? Were you were you thinking about your folks? Were you worried about? Yeah, them? yeah, I was. Um, and yet, there were there's still you know when you're young and innocent, you think everything in the world is going to go your way. You think you're immune to stuff, and then at you're some not. point. You're not, and I think we all go through that, right? It doesn't. You don't know exactly when and where and how. And that, then, what I mean by that is, um, you know, life happens, right? People, people you love die, they get sick, things happen. Um, and that, that driver, by the way, was he was he was killed killed. Yeah, when he after he dropped you off. Well, not not immediately, but I think it was about six months later. He was making another uh-huh. similar drive, uh, taking someone else on the same route and uh, was killed by a sniper. So, I mean, you know, I was 17 years old and sort of oblivious to all this. Like, I mean, I I obviously recognized the danger but didn't think, like, you know, anything was going to happen to me or or us. And then then you got a call. Yeah, yeah. You you were in your dorm room? Yeah, 3 o'clock in the morning, my my dorm room, and uh, 
man named Vahi Simonian, a uh, good Armenian name. He, uh, he worked at the university, a great family friend. Um, he called me um, to give me the news um, that my dad had been shot and killed. Um, and obviously, you know, this, my whole world changed, you know, our, our family's whole, whole lives uh, ended in, in a certain way, and, and a new new life had to begin, and it was, uh, it was pretty rough. You, you, uh, you and your dad were, were close. He was very invested in you and in your aspirations to be a basketball player, helped, helped you secure yeah. your scholarship and so on. Um, what... I, I ask you this as someone who lost. Uh, I lost my father when I was in college yeah. under under different circumstances, but also very difficult circumstances, yeah. Yeah. suddenly and unexpectedly. And it was like uh, I felt completely alone. Yeah. But you yeah. were alone. Yeah. Your family was overseas. Yeah. What What did you do? Uh, well, I turned to my teammates, and that's uh, one of the um, beautiful things about sports is it's like a built-in family. And... Um, kind of a cocoon, and you can lose yourself in sports. Uh, you can lose yourself in physical activity. And So I went to practice the next day, and um, my teammates knew what happened, obviously. My coach, you know, Lou Olson, I spent, I think I slept for three hours on his couch uh, in his office the, the next day when it happened. Um, I didn't sleep all night, and then, um, you know, I didn't know what to do. And, and But I practiced that afternoon. I needed to, to you know, think about something else, and... So I just kept playing and kept going to school and you just move you, on. Uh, you, 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 had a, you practiced the next day and you had a game the next night. I think that it was, was a few nights later maybe. It was maybe three or four days later. But there, that, that game uh, was uh, something that was sort of noted mm-hmm. nationally because every, the entire arena kind of grieved with you right right it, it, it was the kind of thing that back then was kind of it was a local story um you know if today if that happened it would be you know it would have been miserable to deal with that you know you know there would have been it would have been a national story it would have been it would have been unbearable but at the time it was at least an era where there wasn't this 24 uh, 7 invasion on all on your privacy that happens all the time now, but so I, I dealt with, um, you know, the local media or whatever, and and the game itself was very emotional, and there were, you know, the fans were so supportive, and from that point on, I became like an adopted son in Tucson, and people there were so amazing; they took care of me, and and the, the basketball program, the coaches, my teammates, and I was I was lucky, but the team, and. Um, and the guys carried me carried me through a really difficult time because, as you said, my family was still overseas. Um, I'm sure you think about, as I think about, sort of the fact that my dad never saw what what happened. Yeah, yeah. He what would you what would he say about your? Oh, he wouldn't believe it. He wouldn't believe it. I mean, I was not. I wasn't even recruited out of high school. I, you know, I didn't secure the scholarship to Arizona until literally about a month before school started. And so this was this would have been so far fetched, um, but my dad loved uh, sports. He loved basketball. We used to go to the UCLA games uh, when I was a John kid. Wooden era, huh? John Wooden era. Uh, my brother and I would we had two season tickets. My dad wanted to go. My brother and I would fight over the, the season ticket, the other one, and then finally we we resolved it because I became a ball boy. 
So they would sit in the stands, and I was down on the floor wiping up the, wiping up the court. He was, uh, he was assassinated by what was a forerunner of Hezbollah, and even to this day you can see that Lebanon's in the mm-hmm. middle of a, mm-hmm. a, a, a sec- sectarian struggle between the Saudis and Iran. How closely do you follow all of that? It's interesting. I, I, I follow it, but... Um, you know, then there are times where it's like, I, I don't, I don't, I'm tired of this, you know. My brother, my older brother never reads anything about the Middle East. He, you know, I just, I think what happened with our dad just shut him down completely from following Middle East politics. I still have a, an, an interest in it, but there are times when it's just so demoralizing because it's just same stuff, you know, going on and on. Yeah, 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 so. more, maybe, maybe even more, yeah. more so yeah. uh, now. So you mentioned that you weren't exactly, um, you weren't Michael Jordan as you were, uh, as you were uh, growing up. Um, what is it that gave you, you, you know, you became a, 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 an exceptional college basketball player. How? Um, I had some skill. I, I, had, I could always shoot. Yeah. Um, and everything else in my game started to catch up. Um, you know, I was there five years at Arizona. I got stronger. Um, not that I was ever that strong or, or fast, but I got strong and fast enough. Um, and I worked on everything that I wasn't great at. Um, and I had it, but I had an innate sense of the game. I saw the game. I felt it. And, and I thought I would coach. I thought I would eventually go into coaching. But I think what happened was um, our team got so good, and Lou Olson was such a great coach that by the time I left. We went to the Final Four. We had Sean Elliott, who was National Player of the Year. Uh, we, ended, we had like five guys who en- we ended up going on and playing in the NBA. And so being part of this amazing team um, gave me a name, and it gave, propelled me to at least getting a chance in the NBA. And the Phoenix Suns drafted me almost as a favor. You know, uh, Phoenix has always tried to sort of get Tucson in the mix in terms of, you know, Suns. Uh, mm-hmm. The fan base, and, and um, so I think there was a little bit of a favor, but I I got my foot in the door, and then I was able to carve out a niche over over the course of. I should ask you one other thing about that college experience. You uh, you uh, Arizona uh, went and played Arizona State mm-hmm. uh, at some point, and uh, the fans uh, started chanting, really, yeah, ugly in an ugly way, chanting PLO. Mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, uh, kind of a coarse reference yeah, to what yeah. happened to your dad. What stopped you from like running in the stands and yeah. slugging somebody? Yeah, I mean, it was so bizarre. It was, this was my senior year, so this was almost five years after uh, my dad's death. I was probably three or four ASU students, probably drunk, started chanting PLO, which obviously was, you know, just a... I, I guess you called it a course ref. Yeah, I mean it was wasn't PLO had was nothing outrageous. to do with it, right? But yeah, right. Um, but that's beside the point, right? It was just they were trying to get in my head, and, and um, I just I, I was so shocked. I, I actually just sat down on the bench and started crying. I didn't, you know, I was kind of like this. My couple teammates came over and put their arm around me, and and the thing I remember more than anything was this little boy with I still remember it clear as day. This little boy with an ASU shirt came. You know, eight, eight, ten years old, tapped me on the shoulder, and he said, "He said, Mr. Kerr, I'm so sorry. You know, those guys don't know what they're talking about, or something." And I, you know, 
now I'm like, what the hell is going on around here? Uh, but it was such a beautiful moment, you know, out of the out of the mouths of babes, um, whatever the expression. You ever f- see that kid again? No. Uh, maybe maybe that kid's watching. He's maybe all grown up is. now. If if he is, thank you wherever you are. Yeah, Not a lot. You, uh, you improbably, and I don't mean to, to look, I, I was the beneficiary of your skills because I was a Chicago Bulls fan, and so I uh, saw you hit some very big shots before us. But no one would have predicted that you would have the kind of career uh, that you had as a player. Uh, and you got to play with some extraordinary, it's like great, great players, including Michael Jordan. Right. Um, what, what is your observation uh, of, I'm so, I'm so interested in how um, ele- athletes elevate themselves uh, to be greater than the rest, who, who, the athletes who kind of can take charge of that moment mm-hmm. when everybody else is, I don't want to take the shot, mm-hmm. when you take the shot. Mm-hmm. What is it about the psyche of a, a Michael Jordan, a Tim Duncan, a David Robinson, mm-hmm. the kind of players that you played with, uh, that separates them from the rest. Yeah, it's a, it's um, an interesting dynamic. Um, you got a few of them now. Certainly, Steph Curry yeah. would fit in that category. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a really it's one of the fun things about coaching is you get to really see somebody's soul and and um, what what they're about and um, and everybody obviously in the NBA brings something to the table. I mean, they're all such talented players or they wouldn't be here, but there's certain guys who just seem to rise above the rest of them. Um, and it's, it's fearlessness. It's lack of self-consciousness. Um, it's, uh, it's work ethic. It's prep, prepping for that moment. Um, and all the best players you mentioned, you know, Tim Duncan, um, Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, uh, all the best guys are the ones that had you know, the most skill combined with the guts that you're referencing. And uh, that's an amazing combination. The guts to not worry about making a mistake. Yeah, yeah. I still remember Michael uh, had this commercial when he was still playing, talking about how many times he missed the game-winning shot. I can't remember if it was probably a Nike commercial. You know, it was like, I've I've missed the game-winning shot 21 times in my career. And and that that commercial really struck me. because you think of Michael Jordan, you think, well, he made every shot. He, he didn't make every shot. Um, and if you can make half of them in the, in the clutch, you're doing really well. But that means you're going to fail half the time. And so you have to be able to accept failure. And it's the hardest thing for me to accept early in my career. I was not a clutch player, not a clutch shooter, because I was too self-conscious. I was too insecure about the judgment that would come my way. I didn't want to be the GOAT. And I finally kind of got over that hump halfway through my career where I just said, screw it, just, you know, you got to go for it. And, and that, so that was something I had to work at. Um, a lot of guys, like Steph Curry, I guarantee you, he's never thought one time about, oh, my gosh, I wonder what happens if I'm going to miss. He just goes out there and plays. And no conscience, I think, no is conscience, it, yes. No yeah. And it's especially difficult today the amount of judgment that exists for these guys, these young guys. Uh, I mean, we are getting judged not, not just daily, but by the minute, you know, every single step these guys take, everything they do, everything they say is critiqued and judged. And uh, so that's a big part of being a professional athlete these days is, is dealing with all that stuff and still being able to perform at a high level. Jordan also had this 
uh, an edge that was evident on the court, apparently in practice as well. I think you got into a scrap yeah, with him yeah. once. What was that all about? Well, Michael was uh, like the most intense practice player I've ever been around. And his theory was that he was going to put pressure on all of us every day in practice so that we'd be ready for the playoffs and the pressure that comes with adversity. And and so um, it was not easy being his teammate. He challenged you. Um, you had to stand up to him and, and prove your worth. And so we got into it one day. It was just a competitive practice, and there was trash talking. And, and um, you know, we've... We got into it a little bit. I mean, it's it's something that happens, frankly, probably three times a year on every team. But when Michael Jordan is involved, it gets a little more. Well, I think people th- uh, didn't think of you as the most likely uh, pugilistic yeah. match for him. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to beat anybody, but I will fight people. I'm going to lose every time, but I'm I've, I've got a I've got a competitive, insecure streak in me. Um, that you know, I want to win so badly. When I was playing, I knew I wasn't that good. I knew I was the, the worst athlete on the floor every night, and so I was insecure. But the only way to succeed was just to compete and work and, and fight and scrap and claw, and so it led to a few moments like that. You also uh, earned his confidence because did, he. Yeah. Everyone in Chicago remembers him passing you the ball, uh, mm-hmm. and you securing a championship for. Uh, the city. So he probably didn't give the ball up uh, too readily. Uh, he, he probably always assumed he was the guy who should take the yeah. shot. So if he gave the ball up, that says something. Well, he learned. You know, I, I think the guy who uh, helped Michael break through in his own career was, um, was John Paxson. Uh, Phil Jackson was the guy who I think went to Michael and said, we're going we're gonna to run this triangle offense where everybody's going to touch the ball because we can run any offense and you're going to score 30 a game. But these other guys need, need an offense to help, and they need you to get them shots. Early in his career, I don't think Michael really understood that. I think Phil helped him understand it. But the game that was the breakthrough, I think, in terms of Michael's view of basketball, and this is totally my own opinion. I've never asked him this, but... Game five of the finals against the Lakers in 91, and he comes down, and they keep double-teaming him, and he keeps finding John Paxson. Yeah. Pax made five straight shots to close the game out. Bulls win the championship. From that moment on, I think Michael realized you know, not only that he had to trust his teammates, but how to do it. And part of the way he did it was challenging you all year and getting you ready for that, that moment. And I think he, was, he did that with a lot of us. And uh, like I said, it was not, it's not easy, but... It was successful. So you played for all these legendary coaches, uh, for Lute Olson, yeah. uh, for Phil Jackson. Uh, Lenny Wilkins, uh, another Hall of Famer. Greg Popovich. Popovich, yeah. Uh, Fitzsimmons, who was underrated in the history of NFL or NBA coaching. Uh, a great coach. I played for him my rookie year in Phoenix. Real character. So what did you learn from them? Yeah. Um uh, Boy, I learned everything from them. I mean, it's um, they were all. I mean, what makes a great coach? I think what makes a great coach is the connection, uh, the authentic connection um, between player and coach, and the awareness of um, what that player needs, and as a whole, what the team needs, and how to keep the ship moving forward. And it's not about um, X's and O's. That's a part of it, you know. But there's lots of people out there who can draw up a great play. It's about the human connection, and that's where Popovich and Phil Jackson were so brilliant, I think head and shoulders above everybody, 
that that uh, that I can think of in terms of that uh, of motivating, not by you know rah rah let's go get them team, but motivating by finding what's important to you, connecting with you emotionally, learning about your family, keeping things interesting and fun and different, and the the cumulative effect of all that is you just you get this great sort of cruising sensation through the season where every day is fun and you're building and building and building. And obviously they would both readily admit that when you have great talent, mm-hmm. uh, it, that makes, helps. it makes it a lot easier. My job is so much easier because I, I pattern myself after those guys in terms of the dynamics I just mentioned, um, just the joy that comes with playing and the continuity and the relationships. But if we didn't have great talent, you know, I would have been fired by now. It's just the nature of the NBA. So Everything is about talent and what you can do with it. You talk about the arc of a basketball season, and um, you know I, I've thought a lot about this: sports and campaigns, presidential campaigns, uh, and they are similar in the sense that they are long. They have ups and downs, uh, and there are periods when you're not performing the way you should, and you're doing it under the watchful eye of millions of people who think they could do better than right, you right? and who let you know. And you yeah, mentioned yeah. social media may, has made it even uh, more. Uh, so it seems to me that part of it is part of the leadership role, and I saw it in Barack Obama, frankly, in our mm-hmm. campaigns, is to, uh, is to help the team through those, right. not to get too low, mm-hmm. not to get too high, mm-hmm. to think long mm-hmm. and not short. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, and um, accepting the judgment and the criticism that's coming. Sometimes we make fun of it. You know, we'll, uh, you know, we might show somebody's tweet or somebody's comment in a film session just uh, as a reminder of, um, you know, how silly this whole existence is, that everything we do is scrutinized the way it is. So we try to make light of it if we can. And then really zero in on what's important, which is uh, not just how we're going to guard the pick and roll, but um, you know what's what's important to each player. Um, we let family come on flights. Um, Popovich was the first coach I had who did that. It's amazing how powerful it is for a player when he can bring his kids on a road trip. Um, stuff like that is is critical. Um, we have we have. Uh, Team dinners all the time on the road. Our, our ownership is great about understanding the chemistry that comes with, with team meals. You know, get away from the court, get away from the locker room, get into a restaurant, have a glass of wine with your teammate. You're going to learn a lot more about them because you're going to ask them other stuff. Um, all that stuff matters in the course of uh, a season. And um, when you can put it all together with, with great talent that fits together and great personalities and, and guys who are competitive and hungry, um, now you got something, and that's what we've been able to do here. Do you see things uh, in coaching? Uh, leave yourself aside. I think people would uh, include you in the sort of pantheon of great coaches. Uh, but do you see things in coaching and then look at leadership in other aspects, including public life, and see, and see lessons that are translatable? Yeah, yeah. I think you can make a connection to anybody and anything because it's still, whether you're in the business world or sports or education, it's still about a group of people working together and trying to achieve something. And, um, and so it's, uh, I, I, th- I think you can make those connections all the time. Part of it is uh, subjugating, I, I presume, your, your ego uh, to the group. Uh, so you're the leader, right. but you don't want to uh, overshadow uh, the group. Yeah, that's right, and um, and yet you have to maintain your authority over the group. 
Um, and that's sort of the trick. And that's where Phil and Pop were really powerful. Like, I would, when I played for both of them, there was a part of me that was a little afraid of them. Just a little. Um, but I knew how much they loved me, how much they respected me, how much they cared about me. And that combination um, was really powerful. You can't, your, your team can't walk all over you. Um, so I would say about three times a year, I just snap and I go nuts. And it's almost like, you know, if you're, it, it, you don't want to disappoint um, your dad, right? And, and if your dad is very patient, this is how my dad was. My dad was very, very patient my whole life. But every once in a while, you know, he would he'd get so upset. And I'd, I'd be like, oh, my God, I don't want to disappoint him. And I think that, that can be the role of a coach um, or any leader. Like, you, you, you're magnanimous and you're supportive and you're emotionally there and you, you're loving and you're caring. But every once in a while, you just got to snap and, and, and remind them of the goal and what we're trying to accomplish. And, and occasionally during the season, that happens, and I try to steer them back on course and, and – um, but it has to be natural too. It has to come from the heart, and and um, and that's that's the key. If everything is authentic, and and you trust each other, then then the whole group dynamic will work. I uh, speaking of snapping, I was watching a game uh, a few weeks ago when you were playing San Antonio, and <laughs> yeah. uh, both you and Popovich yeah. uh, uh, snapped. He got thrown out of the game. Uh, I deserved to. I didn't get kicked out. I, you, you absolutely did. I, I saw. I can lip read. Yeah. And uh, so could the rest of America. Yeah. But it was shocking because, you, you know, you have this sort of genial yeah. uh, nature and people are accustomed to seeing it both as a broadcaster yeah. and in, as a coach. But you brought it there. Yeah, I was embarrassed. My mom was so, so disappointed in me. You know, I, I do have a bad mouth. That's uh, it's a flaw. And, uh, and, <laughs> and I snap sometimes. And, and uh, yeah, they caught me on film and... and um, I was so embarrassed. My daughter sent me the the, the meme uh, that was going everywhere on the internet, and, I'm just, uh, <laughs> and I, I just I felt off. It was you know it, it's it's fine to snap. I mean it's a competitive environment, and and obviously we all get you know angry on the sidelines, but I can't use those words. Do you uh, you talk about people being under you know when you are in the public eye and with social media and so on? When things happen like this, uh, this current. Uh, what is now becoming sort of a major running story about uh, the abuse of women by people in power. Mm -hmm. I mean, are these things that you talk to with the team and so on? We haven't talked about that particular issue. Um, We've talked about a lot of social issues and political things um, over the the few years that I've been here. Um, That one hasn't come up yet. Um, Maybe it will. I don't know. Um, But... um, yeah, it, it's sort of there's sort of an organic uh, quality to all this stuff. Like you know, you, we're we're basketball players, we're a team, we're trying to win games, um, and so we just kind of go about our business. But invariably, you know, something spend a lot happens. of time together too. Spend a lot of time together, and so those discussions usually aren't um, as a group; they're more individual, um, maybe at a team dinner. Uh, but occasionally we will have a group discussion about a, a social topic or a political issue, and, and guys will get into it. But it's not a it's not a common theme for Phil us. Jackson used to give you guys books when you went on long he road trips. Mm-hmm. And he'd pick out books, individual books that he thought were tailored to right to uh, how uh, do you do th- things like that? Are there things that were, that are sort of customized to what your sense of each guy? I've given I've given. Um, 
a lot of our players' books. It's not a routine, um, but I've given probably four or five of our players' books just based on something that I read that would seem to connect with that player, um, sometimes basketball-related, sometimes not. Um, but it's, uh, it's not a routine like it was with Phil. Phil did it every year. We, we had what we called the circus trip in Chicago. The circus yes. would come to the United Center. and You're on the road for a long time. Two weeks. And so he would always pass out books on the circus trip. I don't do that, um, but uh, I, I have a lot of conversation with our guys um, one-on-one. I really enjoy it. Uh, David West is one of the most interesting guys to speak with um, about the world, about his view of, of um, our country, um, social policy. I mean, it, he's, a, he's a really, really sharp, fascinating guy. I'm interested to see what he does with his life after he's retired. But I, I would say more individual conversation behind the scenes than anything. I want to uh, – you, you were absent from the bench for mm-hmm. long periods of time uh, over the last couple of years. Um, and you were dealing with chronic pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened? I still am. I still deal with chronic pain every day. It's no fun. I had a back surgery, what I thought was a routine back surgery, 2015, right after the finals. And um, unfortunately, there's no such thing as routine back surgery. I didn't really realize that at the time. I've had a lot of friends who've had disc surgeries and done great, and I thought, no no brainer. Um, but uh, I had a spinal fluid leak, um, which uh, is um, can cause a lot of problems um, with uh, equilibrium and cause a lot of pain, and and uh, been dealing with it ever since. I've I've had I've made some improvement, but I'm not all the way better. Um, I'm sure you can watch games and see me on the sidelines. I'm rubbing my eyes and holding my neck, and so I'm still still dealing with with a lot of pain, and it's uh, it's no fun. But um, what do you uh, and 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 uh, how does that impact on your your ability to to do what you do? Well, it, it, more than anything, it just impacts my uh, ability to just enjoy the day. You know, um, it doesn't it doesn't impact my coaching. It doesn't like cognitively. It doesn't do anything. Uh, it's just discomfort. Um, it's pain and discomfort. So, you know, I I love to be outdoors. I love to play golf. I love to to uh, hike and surf and and I haven't been able to do as much of that. So there's you know there's just not as much uh, freedom in my life, but I'm still hopeful that I'm going to get through it. Um, it's a long process, and I've figured out some, some things that have helped, and I'm hoping... So I think I read somewhere marijuana was one of the things that you... It didn't help. Yeah. It didn't help. I huh? tried it. I, it's amazing. I've, I was, uh, I've learned so much during this two years. I've been prescribed uh, painkillers, opioids. Yeah, and have and you over. used them? Never. Um, I shouldn't say never. I tried one, one pill, and it, it was so disconcerting, and it didn't, didn't help with my pain. Um, and so I stopped, but I started reading about it. And it was terrifying. Um, and then, and so I tried medicinal marijuana, and, and uh, that didn't help either, unfortunately. Um, but I became an advocate for it, um, which is very ironic uh, because uh, I was a kid in high school who never. I didn't. I, I took a, a puff of marijuana for the first time on my 40th birthday, <laughs> and it didn't do anything for me. I was a drinker you know, in college, and I still am. I, I like my beer and wine. Um, but never even tried pot till I was 40. Didn't do anything for me. Tried it again in, in a medicinal way. Um, didn't help with my pain, and haven't tried it since. But I'm a I'm a proponent of it as a painkiller because I know 
it has helped a lot of people, and um, and it's much healthier than the stuff that we're being prescribed all the time. Do you see yourself on the bench for? Uh, is this what you want to do? Yeah. Do you have other things that you that you can see yourself doing that you you want to do in the future? Or is have you? Is this the job of your? dreams this is it this is what i love to do and and uh, i would love to be greg popovich and coach for the next 20 years and with the same organization i have no desire to to leave the warriors leave the bay area i realize how far-fetched that idea is because nba coaches don't last for for you know, a long period of time in one city pop is the exception rather the rule than the rule but that would be my dream well you know there that you probably have seen this but there are a lot of, there are people who have an idea for both right. of you guys, yeah. which is this the Popovich Kerr right. 2020 ticket. So, yeah. I, I mean, are you pondering this? Are you mulling it over? Lots of people are thinking of running for president. I will so. campaign for Pop. <laughs> I will absolutely campaign for Pop. I, w- I would not be his running mate. Um, we'd have to find another running mate for him. <laughs> well, I, here's what I want you to sign this shirt okay. for me. All right, we can do that. Yes. We can do that. Uh, you want me to get Pop to sign it, too? <laughs> we should do that, yes. You know, I, 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 uh, I told him when, when these shirts came about, um, we were laughing about it. And I told him, I said, uh, if we do it, I'll take care of California, but you're going to have to. <laughs> that's very generous of yeah, you. Yeah, so that's very generous. That's the of deal. You. <laughs> yeah. Do you see yourself uh, being actively involved on behalf of uh, uh, candidates in the future, it, assuming Popovich isn't running? When you've already said you're for yeah. him. Not really. I've I've really shied away from. Um, I'm not. I'm not afraid to talk about politics. I don't. I don't like the, our system. I hate our system. I hate the the campaign financing. I hate hate the money that's involved. So I have a hard time just you know supporting a candidate. Period. It's just. I. I. I want. I wish we could change the whole system. How would you change it? Uh, shorten the election period would be a big thing, mm-hmm. and then uh, limit the amount of money that can be spent um, on. On campaigns, limit the amount of money that can be donated from lobbying groups, and, and because that's really all all we're doing is is we're 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 you know going to the highest bidder. Our, our Congress is going to the highest bidder and and having to um, basically compromise their ethics and morals and what's best for the country. And and maybe that sounds really idealistic. My sister is a politician in England. Yeah. Um, She's, on the uh, city council, mm-hmm. right? Basically like the equivalent of city council. She actually ran for parliament um, kind of by a fluke. She knew she wasn't going to win. Somebody else dropped out, and the party wanted to put her in. And so uh, I talked to her about British um, politics, and they have a very short window yes. for elections. And there's a very limited amount of money. In fact, to the point where um, what she could spend in her campaign, like she, she, there was a point where she couldn't, Give the hundred and fifty dollars necessary to to print all the flyers and pay the people to put flyers on all the uh, all the, the doors around the neighborhood. That might be a little extreme, but what I like about this is that you take away the huge corporate interests that eventually run the and country. Not not just well, I, it is a corporate issue, I guess. But yeah. you you mentioned the gun issue before, right? Right. Uh, and you were asking why we wouldn't pass common sense. Uh, uh, gun safety laws. Right. Uh, that's part of the answer, isn't it? Sure, sure. The gun lobby, and and and, but that's tied with corporate uh, sales. You know, um, I've done a lot of reading about um, about the the gun industry, and 
you know, the, the, uh, the idea of a gun safety measure, right, makes perfect sense. You have, a, you know, an, an ID. Like if I buy a gun for myself with a safety measure, you can't use it. My child can't use it. It only, it only will work in my hand, right? That technology existed, has existed for a long time. Uh, the gun makers made those 20, 30 years ago, but they weren't selling any of them. So they said, well, we're not going to make those anymore because we're not selling them. Um, so we got rid of that. I mean, think how many lives we could save. We're not taking away your Second Amendment right. We're saying you, you can buy a gun, but it has to have a safety measure on it so that your kid can't accidentally, you know, pull the trigger. And duh, that makes perfect sense. But we were not doing it because they couldn't sell enough and it was bad for business. When you, uh, we talked about your dad. He was shot by, uh, by, by terrorists. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that inform at all your uh, view on guns and gun sure, violence? Sure, I mean, even though it's technically, um, I guess, different, yeah. um, it's still the matter of a human being pulling a trigger to kill another human being. Um, so it's the same thing. So, um, you know, when Las Vegas happens or Texas happens, um, it's absolutely, it hits home for me. Well, Steve, it's good to be with you. Happy holidays to you and your family. Can I point one thing out? Yes. Go ahead. So we're in a hotel in Philadelphia. You've blown our cover. I know. Sorry. You know, we agreed. agreed Yes, absolutely. You said it. You know, we've done an interview in the past. I enjoy your company. Of course, I'm going in with (laughs) Axelrod. And I show up in room uh, 781. And I'm looking at my whole life. This is your life. Yes. This is my life that you guys put together. And so now I'm in here, like, and people are watching going, man, that guy loves himself, doesn't he? He just got jerseys everywhere, pictures of himself. So. Yeah, we're, you're exonerated. This is pure, purely for our, uh, Thank you. our use. But we're going to go over and take a look over here are we? at some of this stuff. Yeah, so if we can get up and do that. Yeah. So you've busted us. This right. isn't really your den. Damn you right, d- it's you, not. You don't tra- this is not you, what you, my den looks like. You don't surround yourself with uh, iconic photos of, of myself, your, of yeah. yourself. Yeah, with like a candlelight vigil at night where <laughs> like, the kids have to come in and pray. Yeah. Yeah. Some some people do, you know. Yeah, um, well, not not quite my style. So thanks for uh, whatever this is. <laughs> well, it's uh, better than blank walls, you know. Yeah, true. So I, I have to ask you though about yeah. this one. Uh, this, when were you in the Partridge family? <laughs> Was this? Uh, <laughs> Look at that hair! Wow, that's uh, that. That's got to be college, I guess. Um, that's uh, pretty embarrassing. Thanks for bringing that up. Appreciate so, it. so you you had five championships as a player. Yeah. And um, of all of those teams, what was what's, what was the most memorable experience? Probably the first one, '96, with the Bulls. Um, just you, you, you. By the way, you didn't. The Bulls didn't call you and say, you know what, we need you, Steve Kerr. Right. You called them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why? Because John Paxson had just had this great run, and I was trying to find a, a team where I could fit. I was not an easy fit for a lot of teams, but I knew I could fit with the Bulls. And, and I had just watched John, and he was kind of a, an idol of mine growing up. He was, uh, you know. Great spot-up shooter. Great spot-up shooter, so I could connect with him. And he was nearing the end of his career, and I thought, that's a role I could play. So I called them, and they invited me to basically try out non-guaranteed contract, minimum contract, and that was really the key to my 
career. That's what kind of got me going. And you had quite a group. It wasn't just Jordan, but uh, you had Scottie Pippen. Mm -hmm. You had Dennis Rodman. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Our future ambassador to North yeah. Korea. <laughs> uh, that was an amazing team. One of the greatest ever. 72 wins in the title. and um, just Until you incredible. guys, your team, yeah. beat that record. Yeah, and that, but we, we didn't finish it off. We didn't win the title. Um, so, um, But, yeah, it's, it was an amazing group to be part of. And uh, Tony Kukoc, unbelievable player. Ron Harper. We had... Uh, so much versatility and size and length and playmakers. It was an amazing team to be part of. You were you were a role player. You were a bench yeah. player. Um, how did, did did you feel totally integrated uh, into this? Uh, oh, yeah, um, yeah. I, I think that year '96 was maybe my third year, fourth year with the Bulls. So I had kind of established myself as part of the team. Uh, but then when Michael came back in '95. Uh, that's when obviously things took off for the, the franchise again, and, and we won three in a row, ninety six to ninety eight, and so you know Michael coming back um, just changed uh, changed my whole the course of my entire career. Until that point, I was making a living, and and I was uh, I made it in the league, and I was scrapping and clawing. But um, you, you, when you're part of a iconic team like that um it, it's amazing what happens individually for each guy you have a, a kind of an iconic team now partly because mm. of this guy how, how would you compare whose jersey i just happened to have in yeah my, it's unbelievable well it's nice because i don't i don't want people to think that you only think of yourself that's right so that that's you right. have one of your yeah. own players jerseys yeah. here I in think my it's a den nice i have 17 pictures of myself and then one <laughs> steph curry jersey that's how i operate <laughs> how does he compare to uh to, to Jordan? Um, couldn't be any more different um, as a personality, as a human being. Um, similar in his passion for the game and his impact um, in terms of game planning, what he does to the defense. Um, I've never seen anybody do it the way he does. Uh, there's certain players where you just have to game. The other team has to game plan. Michael Jordan, Shaq, um, Larry Bird, like you, you just have to concoct a defensive scheme that's going to deal with that particular player. Not many players you can say that about. But Steph, because of his shooting ability, 35 feet away from the <laughs> yes. hoop, changes the, the entire strategy and the lineups that the other team has to, to put out there. So uh, more than anything, though, just an amazing um, human being, compassionate, humble, modest, um, funny, and then on the floor just arrogant as all hell, which I just love. You, uh, I read somewhere that you, um, I mean, you practice, you, you mess around before the practices, they can come in and do goofy, crazy shots, and you, you, part of it is, I guess, taking the pressure off and reminding people, reminding your guys that it's, it's a game. Yeah, yeah, well, and that's where Steph really, I think, uh, sets a tone for our team. I mean, he's, uh, he loves playing so much, he really is like a big kid. And uh, so the joy that we talk about is uh, exemplified by his approach to every day. He comes in and works. I mean, he gets his work in every single day, never misses a day uh, of shooting and working on his body. And so he's as hard a worker as anybody. But there's this joy and ease about him that is contagious, and it sets a great tone. Well, you set a great tone as well. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Great to be with you. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast. 
and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.